Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're honored to have with us Dr. William Chandler from University of Michigan. He will be talking to us about pearls for diagnosis of pituitary tumors and also his technical nuances for transnasal microsurgical removal of these tumors. Bill, thank you for joining us, and we're very excited to listen to your pearls. Uh, thank you, Aaron. First of all, thank you. Thank you and the AANS for putting together this wonderful series. I have had an opportunity to review some of the other uh, programs that have been done, and I think it's a wonderful teaching tool. So I will try to add a few of my uh, uh, views with my experience over the years. So what, what we'll talk about, and I'll, you can see the title. I'm going to move on. I don't have any uh, disclosures in this area. One comment I would make is that uh, we see these patients with pituitary and, and emphasize both pituitary and paracellar lesions in our clinics, and of course the endocrinologists see these folks, but remember that, that they present to uh, oftentimes, of course, the emergency room, sometimes to their ophthalmologist, sometimes a neurologist with symptoms, sometimes even a psychiatrist with Cushing's disease, and of course, most importantly, here at the bottom, our primary care providers and pediatricians see these people sort of out in the trenches and have to recognize what are oftentimes complicated endocrine symptoms. So I thought I would, oh, let me make a comment also that I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Barkan, who you see sitting in this picture, who's a pituitary endocrinologist, and Steve Sullivan, who's next to him, who is uh, a new member of our pituitary clinic who has been focusing on the endoscopic approaches. So I think the, the combined multidisciplinary clinic has been extremely helpful to our patients. Uh, the patients are always seen either by myself or Dr. Sullivan along with Dr. Barkan at their first visit. So I'd like to go through just a few sort of pearls and pitfalls from the, from the endocrine standpoint. So much of what we do is deciding who to operate on, and, and there's a few tricks along the way that I've certainly learned, and I'd like to share a few of those. The first one, and you can see this is a standard list of endocrine workup that's done in most pituitary uh, patients, and the first thing that we see a lot of is that patients come in with a normal TSH, but remember that in uh, secondary hypothyroidism, in other words, if it's coming from uh, sort of upstream in the pituitary, the TSH, which doesn't really have a lower limit, may be normal. So it's very important to always check the free T4. And this oftentimes when patients come in, this has not been done. And I, I'm going to show a couple of things. Uh, another sort of pearl is that when you see patients with uh, symmetrical enhancement, and you can see that on this patient, beware. And I'll show you how this relates a little bit to the thyroid workup and to some other uh, areas in the workup. So this was a woman who came in 28 years old, fatigue, headache, slightly elevated prolactin, presumably a stalk effect, hypothyroid, not too surprising with a mass like this and a morning cortisol that was sort of not too low but not too high. And uh, she came in eager to have surgery and had been worked up. And I looked at this and realized that there's one thing sort of uh, a clue here that there may that this may not be a tumor, and that is you can see the very symmetrical enhancement here. We don't see any pituitary gland around the edge. So what's missing from this picture 
and what's missing, I can advance this, is that we have only a free T4. When a TSH was done, it was greatly elevated. Again, normal was up to seven. This was over 100. And this patient simply has primary hypothyroidism. This is a hypertrophy gland. This is what happens when the patient was simply put on Synthroid. So the treatment of this patient was Synthroid and not surgery. So uh, remember, in primary hyper, hyperthyroid, I'm sorry, that should be hypothyroidism. Of course, the TSH goes up and the free T4 um, goes down. And secondary, just the opposite, which we covered. So the main message for the primary care doctors and all the folks that we talk to about pituitary surgery is to be sure and get both. Now, another area, and I, I sort of call this the pseudotumor of hypothyroidism. I've seen at least a half dozen cases like this in children and adults over the years. So here's another situation, another sort of beware when you see this symmetrical enhancement. These are two different patients. I'll show you the first patient. And uh, this is a patient who came in with this sort of enhancement, a mass. This patient did go to surgery uh, a long time ago and was biopsied, and this turned out to be lymphocytic hypophysitis. So this is what hypophysitis looks like. So this patient came in a few years later, again referred in for surgery with what was believed to be a tumor. And you can see, I think there's an arrow over here pointing to this very small carotid artery. So this sort of mass lesion process had narrowed both carotids. On the patient's right, you can hardly even see the carotid. She was a young woman, fortunately, without any neurovascular problems. Uh, but we looked at that, and I said, you know, this sort of looks like hypophysitis, looks like an inflammatory process. It's symmetrical. There's no normal gland. So we put her on prednisone, 40 milligrams a day for a month, and here's what her scan looked like. And she was on the prednisone for, I think, three or four months, came off of it. This has never changed since then. It's never come back. So this is a patient with what we would call granulomatous hypophysitis. So again, beware when things look symmetrical. This is another thyroid-related issue that's sort of interesting. This patient came into our office with a uh, hyperthyroid, with elevated free T4 and a normal TSH and a black sort of hole in the middle of her pituitary gland. When I looked at this, I just thought she had hyperthyroidism. She was sort of nervous and jittery. But Dr. Barkan looked at this and realized that this is a problem that the TSH was in the normal range, but with, a, with an elevated free T4, the TSH should be ultra low. It should be almost barely measurable. So this patient, here's a CT scan, showed this was a small calcified mass. I took that out, and it was a TSH-secreting microadenoma, and the patient uh, had normal thyroid function after that treatment. So the pearl is that when the free T4 is elevated, the TSH should be, uh, go back to that, should be almost unmeasurable. Now the workup of a patient uh, looking at their ACTH levels, uh, a patient who looks like this, who came in looking like the poor fellow had been in a, uh, been locked in a closet for years, um, was panhypopit, and his 8 a.m. cortisol was less than one. So that's easy. Here's what he looked like, by the way, two years earlier. So this is an example of someone with panhypo, panhypopituitarism. 
So the, the message is that if you suspect hyper, hypocortisolism, simply get an 8 a.m. cortisol and you'll usually have the answer. If it's only moderately low, and this may be in a post-op patient or a patient you're working up, uh, it may, if they're uh, healthy enough, they can have an insulin hypoglycemia stimulation, stimulation test and the cortisol should rise to up over about 20. So how do we, how do we work up patients with Cushing's disease uh, looking for hypercortisolism? And of course, the first thing, and this is again back in their primary care office or the pediatrician's office, is clinical suspicion. Then when they have that, I think the best test to get is a 24-hour urine-free cortisol. Uh, the over, overnight dexamethasone suppression test is only about 80% reliable. And if you really suspect that a patient has Cushing's syndrome, let's say, that they're hypercortisol, you should get at least two 24-hour urine-free cortisols. And that we found to be the best diagnostic test of, of hypercortisolism. Um, so proving hypercortisolism, again, I think is with the 24-hour urine cortisol. Uh, then if a patient has uh, normal imaging of their pituitary, if, if they have cortisolism, they look like they have Cushing's, and uh, they have a pituitary tumor, that's easy. You can proceed to surgery. But if the imaging, which is true, uh, and about 40% of Cushing's have normal imaging on MR, then the inferior petrosal sinus sampling is, of course, the best way to prove pituitary origin. But remember that it only uh, lateralizes um, about 70% of the time. Uh, Aaron, did you have a question? Yes, if I may ask, Bill, um, how do you use the uh, cortisol level in the saliva in order to form a decision of who to operate and who, who not to operate? Is to that honest, the most sensitive test? Yeah, to be honest, uh, we do use that. Patients come in oftentimes with salivary cortisol, it's usually done at night. And uh, if that's elevated, I think that's part of the picture. But, and it is very sensitive, and it's probably a very good screening test. We still rely on the repeated 24-hour urine-free cortisols um, to, um, you know, to make the diagnosis. Now, there are patients with cyclic Cushing's, and this simply requires a number of checks. And that's where the salivary cortisol can be helpful as well. Can you tell us a little bit about pseudo-Cushing? and how patient, surgeons make sure they can differentiate that from really a more surgically amenable form of Cushing's disease? Well, uh, yeah, we, I honestly don't see a lot of pseudo-Cushing's, but again, I think uh, you, you have to have repeated reliable evidence for, uh, for hypercortisolism. There are patients who have other medical illnesses who can have pseudo-Cushing's disease, um, but if, if the patient uh, has the clinical signs and symptoms and, again, uh, reliable 24-hour urine collections, then, of course, we assume that they, that they truly have Cushing syndrome and move on to further diagnosis, uh, diagnose the, the etiology. And that's where, again, if MR is helpful, that's great. If not, the petrosal sinus sampling. In uh, one example, in men, you know, it's a little less likely to be pituitary origin. We had one gentleman where the petrosal sinus sampling was negative and kept looking and looking. He ultimately had, had uh, serial 
sampling of the venous blood in, in every lobe of his lung because the CT scan of his lung was negative. Finally, we found that in one lobule, it was very positive. Thoracic surgeons resected that and serial sectioning showed a very small tumor. So it can be difficult. So it seems like for you, the 24-hour urine is the more, sort of the most sensitive test and it needs to be re repeated to determine Cushing's disease. Is that correct? I know it's part of the picture, but in the big picture is one of the more important ones. Yeah, I, I think to de determine hypercortisolism again. Now you can use the low and high dose dexamethasone suppression test to further look for a pituitary origin. Um, and again, the imaging and the petrosal sinus sampling is quite accurate. Okay? Thank you. Um, so another sort of pearl, I guess, is that with Cushing's, it's really all or none. As you'll see in patients with acromegaly, if you take out 95% of the tumor, they're a lot better. They may not be perfect, but with Cushing's, my experience is you really get a, a, a perfect result. In other words, the postoperative cortisol levels are subnormal uh, or, or you don't have success at all. The other thing I would say, this says be willing to go back for a second look. And I'll show you an example on this slide. This is a patient where I took out a normal uh, imaging, uh, positive petrosal sinus sampling. I took out half the gland, and the patient was not cured at all. So I went back, took out the rest of the gland, and you can see this tissue stain for ACTH that's literally about one millimeter in size and the patient was cured. So that was it. So you can't see that at surgery and you can't see it on imaging. So the few patients, I think you just have to take out most of the gland. This is a patient where the first half of the gland that was taken out showed hyperplasia and the treatment for that is to go back, I believe, and take out the rest of the gland. So I think you need, I always tell patients that they might need two operations for Cushing's disease. So a few Pearls with acromegaly, and I've summarized some of these, and the main one is that, as many of you know, that growth hormone may be normal. Here's a nice picture from your book of Harvey Cushing and a very tall fellow, but they, they actually may look normal as well. And another pearl that, that I learned in the process of seeing patients, and a lot of folks don't know, is that estrogen will suppress IGF-1. I'll show you an example of that. So here, interestingly, on the uh, on your left side are acromegalic patients, 24-hour growth hormone levels, and on the right side, these are normal controls. So you see all these spikes that we all have all the time, but if you look on at the acromegalic patients, sort of the area under the curve is too high, and these patients both have clinical acromegaly, elevated IGF-1s, and as you can see, normal growth hormone levels, whereas the normals have normal IGF-1, even though they have these spikes. So IGF-1 is the gold standard. Yeah. Is, that correct? is that correct? The source of estrogen is usually the contraceptive pills. Is that is that right? So you have to ask the patients to stop their pills before you get an accurate measurement? Yes. That Those are relatively low levels. Uh, I'll give you an example here. This, this is a woman who, as a nice control, brought her twin sister with her, although I'm not sure you could pick out which one is ac acromegalic. They both have sort of square jaws. But the woman with the circle here has an obvious pituitary tumor. Has uh, They had identical rings they were given since they were twins. She had had her ring 
uh, increased in size. The twin sister had not. It's a wonderful control. But look at her values. A slightly elevated IGF-1, normal would be about 250. Growth hormone 3, which isn't terribly low, but within the normal range. She was taking estradiol, so she was actually excuse me, on estrogen treatment uh, for something uh, and not just birth control pills. So Dr. Barkan had her stop this and her IGF-1 went to 1300. So estrogen actually can be used. It's not a standard treatment, but it can be helpful in patients who are not cured with surgery. So again, it's a, it's a nice little pearl to be aware of, be aware of that fact. So I already mentioned that reducing the tumor is oftentimes helpful in these patients. And another uh, thing to remember is that it may take days to weeks, even a month or so, for the IGF-1 to reach its uh, lowest level to come down postoperatively. So uh, the other thing is that today most postoperative failures, and, and if you have sizable tumors, you're going to have about 40% failures uh, because they're invasive. Uh, the first uh, line is, is somatostatin analogs, such as samostatin LAR or somatulin now, uh, and then pigvisumab, which is somavert, which is a, um, uh, a receptor blocker. And then uh, if that fails, then focused uh, radiation, either fractionated or stereotactic radiosurgery, is still uh, very helpful in these patients. So a couple of pearls about prolactin-secreting adenomas. Obviously, in every patient need, with a pituitary tumor needs their prolactin measured, and uh, most of these are treated med medically now with cabergoline, a dopamine agonist. And then I think m many people are aware, we published a case of this many years ago, the so-called hook effect, and I'll mention that. So this I put in here not to give up on cabergoline. Some people would see this and say, my gosh, this has to have surgery, it's probably too big to be treated medically. Here's this patient a few months later with the prolactin down to 72, which is a fraction of where it started, and the tumor uh, nicely shrunken. Here's another phenomenon that I've seen on several occasions. Oftentimes, in acromegalics and prolactinomas, the tumors, tumors grow downward like this, not upward, and you treat a patient like this uh, medically, and they develop CSF rhinorrhea, and, it, and then that has to be treated surgically because they simply, the tumor disappears, the floor, the, the skull base has been eroded through by the tumor. Here is a patient, uh, a classic example, the fellow that we published this case with a very large tumor, an entire skull base. It wasn't clear what this was. Uh, his prolactin was only 40. He was hypothyroid. He was hypopituitary. He actually had proptosis from this tumor getting into his orbits. So I operated on him and the pathology stained very positively for prolactin. Repeat prolactin was 45 and Dr. Barkan said, you know, let's dilute it down and see. So they finally diluted this uh, one to a thousand and his prolactin was 280,000. So the so-called hook effect is essentially this. There's a nice little hook. Uh, as, as in the assay, as the value gets very high, it overwhelms the assay, hooks back down, and it may read as being very low. So the, the, the thing to learn from that is if you have a large tumor, you don't see this in small tumors, you have a large tumor with a normal prolactin, always ask your lab, laboratory to dilute the 
the um, specimen to check for prolactin, and it may not show up uh, until you get to 1 to 50, 1 to 100, in this case, 1 to 1,000. So always ask for serial deletion. Now, a few, a few comments about um, sort of pearls of surgery, and then I think we'll move on to a, a couple of your videos. Um, the approaches, of course, are basically subfrontal or transnasal. I used to do a lot of sublabial, but that uh, I stopped quite a while ago, and most of these are done transnasal. I think it's really a personal choice whether you prefer the microscope or the endoscope, uh, going transnasally or a combination of the two. You know, just make a couple of comments on that. So here's the approach, very straightforward. What I do with this, well, here just shows that you can treat, of course, a very small tumor uh, or a very large tumor with the same approach. Um, I simply use a, a Killian speculum, which is a common ENT instrument. Um, I put this, I don't go uh, submucosal at all until I get to the very back of the nose. Uh, another nice little pearl is that the inferior turbinate is very easy to see. The middle turbinate is easy to see, and if your speculum is in line with the middle turbinate, although I always use lateral fluoroscopy, it's virtually always pointing at the cella. Works every time. This is a little trick. I take a little, cut a little piece of a finger off of a glove and put it around here, so that as you bovie down deep, you don't make any burns on the on the entrance to the nares here, and that's worked well. So obviously lateral fluoroscopy, so you don't go too high or too low. Uh, this is the is the speculum is down now against the the uh, anterior wall of the sphenoid sinus. I simply use the bovi to uh, take the mucosa off of here. Here's an opening looking into the sphenoid sinus, uh, and then what you want to do is enlarge this so you have a nice opening, and you need to then break across the midline. Uh, what I'm using now is a drill, this this very nice sort of curved drill, and I'm not supporting any particular manufacturer, but this one with a gentle curve on it works extremely well. What I used to do is use an angle kerosen to cut under there, and it works very nicely, uh, but the drill is probably a little bit faster. So this just shows how this is drilled or, or sort of bitten away, and then you come right up here. You do, when you're coming in on, I usually come in on the patient's right side because of where I stand, so you are always looking a little bit across to the left, and you have to remember that, although I've not had any problem getting a full exposure here. This is a view once the uh, sphenoid sinus is open. Here's drilled away the, uh, the anterior wall of the cella. I usually make a horizontal and a vertical cut downward. I try not to open the upper half unless I have to. If it's a big tumor, you want to do that. But looking for a microadenoma, the, when you get into the upper half, you're more likely to get CSF, which is prone to leak right along this upper edge up here, those little folds of arachnoid that come down. So, there's a nice little um, uh, pituitary tumor, microadenoma. So this is, is another pearl, and I'll show you an example of this, and this is probably true in any surgery we do, is be willing to swallow your pride, stop and back out, and also use frameless navigation very liberally. I've done nearly a couple of thousand of these tumors, and I still find that the frameless is very helpful, certainly on any very small tumor or on any redo. Now. Here's an example I did of a fellow uh, uh, with who I didn't really appreciate so much. He has sort of complicated 
sphenoid sinus, septi in here. He has Cushing's with a normal imaging of the pituitary. So I got up here. I got some bleeding, nothing bad, but I just couldn't be entirely sure where I was. So I stopped, backed out, got a stealth CT scan, and you can see I was actually headed off here a little bit. He had a funny septum coming in from this side, and here's the carotid artery right there. So had I kept going on that track and not recognized that this needed to be drilled away, could have been a problem. So we put him in the uh, frameless uh, navigation system. Here's going back in now. We correct the trajectory and uh, drill this away, and everything worked out fine. Just one comment. I like this system that we actually bought two of these for our spine folks, and it turns out you can spin this thing and generate uh, essentially by, by one spin. There's a camera up here that sees um, uh, infrared detectors here as well as here. And with one spin of this, you generate a, a CT scan and it registers it into the stealth system. So I use that. So we have, we have the stealth system here and then of course lateral fluoroscopy and you can make sure this correlates. So this shows you the midline, which in a small tumor is very helpful. Uh, when I finish the case, if there's any degree of CSF, I'll put a piece of bone in. A lot of times I'll take a little piece of iliac crest bone and, and uh, fit that in there since I don't take any bone on the way in. Uh, and then I put some uh, tissue glue over that, fat, a little more glue, and then a pack, and then that looks like that. Just a little tape. We pull that out, and, and virtually all of our patients go home the next morning. And they can actually breathe even with that pack in there since it's a small pack up high. One comment about the extended transmittal approach, uh, and this is where I'll comment that the endosco endoscopic uh, systems that are used are very helpful in this. You can, of course, treat chordomas. Uh, you can go up above here for craniopharyngiomas or a few, uh, uh, Ed Oldfield's talked about a few Cushing's patients with tumor up along the stalk. And then you can go further forward for meningiomas, which I personally uh, don't recommend. I like doing these intracranially. Um, so the extended approaches, the uh, endoscope is, is very helpful for that. Uh, it is two-dimensional, and of course you need, a, I think, a good ENT person to work with you. We, I have some, some thoughts that, that the extended approach may be, the endoscope may for some of these tumors that invade the cavernous science, that may prove to be helpful. A couple of slides on intracranial surgery. Don't give up on that. It's very straightforward. Here's a patient with a craniopharyngioma, which I do not do these from below, but come in with this standard terional approach. Here's, of course, the carotid, the optic nerve, the cystic craniopharyngioma. Uh, and, and here afterwards, you can see the stalk and the basal artery. And these come out very nicely from above. This is a left-sided view, maybe a little hard to see at first. This is the optic nerve, the very large meningioma. Here it is partly out, and here it is pretty much completely out. But you can see this optic nerve is sort of pale, and uh, this is a damaged nerve from the tumor, hopefully not from the surgery, may, may not have a high likelihood of getting better. So I, I think maybe I'll stop there if you have some cases. Thank you, Bill. I think those were very helpful. One thing that I have personally learned, and a couple of times the hard way, is if you don't know what's going on, do back out. It's very simple and very usual for neurosurgeons to not to be able to back 
away and say, no, no, I can do this. I've done this a lot. Those septations in the cella can be extremely confusing, can really limit your view and can really push you in the wrong way. And you can open the carotid artery and not know where you are and really enter a very devastating hemorrhage without any control. Uh, so I think the most important pearl that I have learned in pituitary surgery that location is the most important thing. And number two is operate on the right person. Uh, if any time there is this homogeneous enhancement that is very symmetric, usually there is something else going on, especially uh, girls who are going through puberty. Um, by the way, one second, we froze, which was a good time to freeze. Let me uh, go out and come back. Just hang on one second. Okay. Okay. Oh, we're good now. Uh, it stopped. So I'll start from the, if you don't mind, I apologize. So, Bill, thank you so much for these very important pearls. One thing that I have learned a couple of times in a hard way is if you don't know where you are and if things don't seem very usual to you, I think it's best to back out and repeat a CT scan just like you mentioned and come back with a strategic CT later. It is very easy just to uh, not have your ego uh, uh, or have your ego get on your way, continue removing tumor, ending up at a location of a carotid artery or cavernous sinus, causing an injury to a large vessel, have a lot of hemorrhage, not be able to control, and really make a relatively straightforward operation to a very dangerous one for the patient. So I think knowing where you are in cella, especially when the septations of the cella are very complex, it is extremely easy for people who are very experienced to get lost. I cannot emphasize that. And um, I'm not considering myself necessarily very experienced, but I have seen that happen. Um, I also um, wanted to mention the issue of homogeneous enhancement and symmetric enhancement of tumors. You don't want to operate on someone who doesn't need surgery and remove piece of their tumor, a piece of their normal pituitary gland, potentially cause a CSF leak, have them have a meningitis, and really it becomes a cascade event after that when you didn't need to operate on somebody who didn't need it. Very often, Girls who are going through puberty have hypertrophied glands. Pregnant women can have, obviously, hypertrophied glands. And this can be easily mistaken for a pituitary tumor end up in a surgeon's office who, uh, for some reason, who is always used to seeing patients with pituitary tumors, look at it as a regular pituitary tumor, goes and does a biopsy of a normal hypertrophied gland in a um, girl who is going through puberty, looks very hard, sends multiple specimens, it comes back negative, causes CSF leak. After surgery, the patient has a CSF leak, has a meningitis, and it just goes down after that. I think those pearls are some of the most common pitfalls of surgeons getting into trouble. Don't you agree? I, I do, and, and particularly you mentioned the young women in uh, 16 to 20-year-olds. We, we say that with some frequency, and, and Oftentimes, people come in, of course, have headaches, and they may actually push you to do surgery because they're unhappy with their headaches, and, and the best thing, of course, is, is to just resist. And the last thing you want to do is injure a normal gland. On a pregnant, on a young woman who is looking forward to a pregnancy, um, is it correct that if you do a pituitary tumor in a young woman and they have an injury to their pituitary gland, does that put their pregnancy in the future at risk? 
Well, yeah, certainly, although the reality is with uh, today's sort of endocrine technology, a, a woman without a pituitary gland at all can still be, uh, can still have, preg have a pregnancy. And that's really different certainly than it was 20, 25 years ago. Okay. But if, obviously, those are only patients who have tumors and who needed surgery in the first place. Sure. Well, I want to thank you again, and I think this was very useful. And uh, again, uh, we appreciate all your thoughts.